Hey, hey, beer fans. Hello and welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best brewers and get their tips, tricks, and secrets and put them right straight into your brain pan. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out. Well, and on today's episode, well, this is episode 48. And if you paid 48. A- 48. And if you paid attention to your math skills in high school, you'll know that 48 is a multiplicative of 12. And what do we do every 12 Ooh. episodes? We answer your questions. Lots That's and lots right. of questions. We have a lot of questions from you guys this time, so uh, we're going to uh, take a quick break here, come back, do some announcements, tell you about our sponsors, and dive right into them. So stick around. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iodophore. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Okay, we are back, and we got a few things to tell you about, and Drew's going to start. Yeah, okay, so the first one is, if you haven't paid attention, and I don't know why you wouldn't have, uh, last week we had a new episode of The Brew Files come out, like we do, episode 17, uh, Family Affair, The Family That Brews Together, where I interview my brother-in-law, who is somehow miraculously married to my sister, and loving it. (laughs) How did that work? I don't know. But he's a really nice guy, and they're both brewing together, and they both uh, dropped a bunch of recipes, including, I think, one of my favorites, which was a recipe collaboration that I did with my sister, where the, she then proceeded to tell me I was completely wrong about what I was doing. Well, so what's new? Yeah. Well, she is my older sister. There we go. <laughs> so go <laughs> yeah, ahead. Well, I d- you know, I do the same thing. I think that that means you should just accept the fact that most of the time you're going to be wrong. Uh-huh. Well, hey, like I said... Go over, it's the next show down in the feed, 37 minutes of family feuds and fun. Uh, part of it recorded in a cruise ship. Ooh, boy. Fancy, fancy. Yeah. 
And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in iTunes, or you can go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, click on the Amazon, AHA, Brew Your Own, or Patreon links, and uh, when you click on the Amazon, AHA, or Brew Your Own links, you can uh, take advantage of their services, and we get a few bucks from that. You click on the Patreon link, and you can pledge a buck or two to take part in our charity, which is... And for this part of the year, it's Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation, which is helping to fund the care and research into uh, treatments for pediatric cancer. Come on, it's kids with cancer. You know you want to give a buck. That's right, man. What could be better? So a special deal for listeners of the Experimental Brewing Podcast right now. Until September 13th, if you click on the BYO link on our website, you know the one that we keep telling you about, not only do we get a kickback for uh, your subscriptions, but right now you're going to get 50% off of a full year subscription. And hey... If you're already a subscriber, if you've already got like, you know, say eight more months going, if you renew right now, you just get another year added to your your list for 50% off. 50% off. That's nearly half. I know, right? And also, BYO has started doing these boot camps around the country. They have one coming up in Indianapolis on November 3rd to the 4th, where you get to hang out with like Mike Tonsmere, Gordon Strong, John Palmer, not Denny, not me. Sorry. Yeah, not this time. Uh, but right now, if you actually sign up before 9.15, you're going to save $125 on this two-day experience. That's two days of like close one-on-one attention with some of the best brains in homebrewing. And just like the BYO subscription, we get a small portion of those funds. So, hey, click on the website, go to BYO, go register for the boot camp, and mention Experimental Brewing in the comments. That's right. And remember, you've only got a couple weeks left to do this, so get on it. Do it now. Uh, sign up for the boot camp, come to experimentalbrew.com and click on the BYO link. So, uh, I guess we have some, uh, some feedback now too, huh? Yeah, we have one piece of feedback and one piece of correctional department of corrections. My favorite segments, uh, feedback. (laughs) You remember uh, last episode, we announced the winners of our Y yeast contest uh, for Q3 for the special strains and and Nikki Forster, who you'll also hear from later on in this episode, uh, was one of our winners for her, uh, Dre Dre Trois Twipple. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Let's try that one again uh, for her Dre Dre Trois Twipple. And she reached out to go, oh, hey, guys, it wasn't just me. Uh, There needs to be a good co-credit in there uh, to her buddy, Brandon Whalen, who was an inspiration for the recipe and helped uh, drive the whole creation of the thing. So there you go, Nikki and Brandon. That's right. Congrats to you too, Brandon. Yep. All right. And then in the Correctional Department of Corrections, Department of Corrections, we do have one small uh, correction that came in on the episode where we were talking about the Funky Buddha sellout uh, to Constellation Brands. I said that uh, Funky Buddha was located in Oakland Park, or sorry, in Overland Park. Um, wow, it's about to be recursive on the corrections. I said Overland Park, <laughs> and I totally forgot. No, no, it's Oakland Park, and it's actually more Fort Lauderdale and less Miami. Mia culpa, mia culpa, mia maxima culpa. I'm a Central Floridian, not a Southern Floridian, so I got my geography screwed up. And I'm not a Floridian at all, so I wouldn't know the difference. Mm-hmm. So that's why I didn't correct him. So thanks for uh, letting us know about those things. Uh, we uh, like to get things right when we can and just make something up when we can't, right? Yeah, particularly things like Twipple. Okay, that takes care of all the upfront stuff. Uh, we tried to get through it quick because we got a lot of questions to answer. 
answer. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be tackling questions about ingredients, so stick around. Y-Yeast has been producing premium liquid yeast for over 30 years and continues to provide homebrewers with the same quality, purity, and reliability as the professionals. The third quarter private collection emulates the rich traditions and characteristics of Belgian-style beers from Flanders to Florinville. 3739 Flanders Gold Nail, 3789 Trappist-style blend, and 3822 Belgian Dark Ale are worthy choices for creating the diverse First styles of Belgium this summer. And congratulations to the winners of the Y-East Experimental Brewing Belgian Summer Contest. Jordan Nudson, Nikki Forster, and Chris Kepler. You can find their winning recipes at yeastlab.com and experimentalbrew.com. So go get those Y-East seasonal yeasts and brew your own winners. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Hey, we're back. Thanks for sticking around and listening to what our sponsors have to say. And we're about to dive into ingredient questions here. And the first one comes from Brian West, who says, Hey, Denny and Drew, I've recently bought a lot of Cascade pellet hops from the now sadly defunct Nico Brew while they were liquidating their inventory. 44 pounds total. Holy cow, dude. I have vacuum-packed half and intend to use those as is. However, I want to age the other half for more sour styles. All information I find online tends to be either too vague, throw in a paper bag and wait, or wildly specific about whole-leaf Hallertau hops aging in a mountain chateau in a specific valley in Europe. Get ready for vacation, Brian. Do you have any insight on time, temp, humidity, hops need to be at to age appropriately for sour styles. I've heard tales of cheesy, rancid notes from not aging long enough, and also of no flavor and no acid from aging too long. Can pellets be aged or are only whole leaf recommended? Any direction is extremely appreciated. Thank you for all you do, Brian in Dubois, Pennsylvania. P.S. I have all your books and am eagerly anticipating the next one. Well, Brian, you're our kind of guy. What can I say? Um, okay, firstly, let me just kind of throw in some of my own thoughts here. And uh, that is, number one, there's no point in aging hops for sour beers. I know that, you know, the romantic notion of lambics is that, you know, hops are aged and, and they just toss them in there and uh, they don't contribute anything except the preservative properties that that's just really not necessary uh next comment is that uh, all hop varieties are going to age differently and uh, so i would not expect your cascades to come out the same as the uh specific whole leaf howler tower you mentioned in your note thirdly um I don't think you're going to have much luck aging pellets. I think that you need the vegetal material in whole hops to do it. And, uh, you know, again, that gets back to the point, 
why bother? I know a lot of people who make sour beers, and I don't know any of them who use uh, aged hops. And again, the purpose of the aging hops is to kind of try and get rid of the uh, of any aroma or flavor characteristics to them. Uh, so you know that kind of like uh, goes to your point where you have heard of aging too long, you get no flavor. Well, that's the whole point of aging. So. If you really are inclined to do it, I would uh, start with whole hops and put them in your oven at about 250, 200 to 300 degrees, something in that area, uh, for any place from a few hours to a day or so. Check them. You have to uh, decide for yourself when they are aged enough. Frankly, though, I would say... Just don't hassle with it. Just skip it, buddy. Just use them uh, as they are or save them and put them in pale ales and go get some noble hops for your uh, sour beers. You got anything to add to that? Well, I was going to say I'm not exactly a huge fan of the idea of like aging American hops because uh, I think half the point of the noble hops is they already are oxidized. You know, that's part of the noble. <laughs> no, I mean, that's part of the noble character is an, right. is an oxidized uh, thing. So I think that's why it works there. Uh, yeah, but you know, I don't know. I think you can. I think it makes more sense if you want to really do the debittered aged tops to go find them online because a lot of stores will give them to you for relatively cheap uh, and do it that way. <laughs> yeah, right. Find find a lousy homebrew shop and get your hops there. Well, no, not even just a lousy homebrew shop. I mean, there are shops that that do have well stored aged tops. My uh, my local homebrew shop does, for instance. So yeah, right. Or just don't worry about the aging. I just don't feel like it's necessary. Yep, there you go. Okay, next question about hops and dogs, yeah. and you get it. Yeah, this one comes from Chris Brand. and says, uh, hello, Drew and Denny. I'm guessing this question is for Drew. You're right. Not really. Well. We both have dogs. I know, but I'm the dog guy. Anyway, I'll start out by saying that I love your books, Experimental Homebrewing, and the podcast. The book has been invaluable to for my homebrew club competitions, which oftentimes require experimental ingredients. Yay, competitions. Anyway, I had a question about hops and their effects on dogs. I'd always heard that hops are extremely dangerous for dogs and assumed that meant in any form on the vine, pellets, or spent. However, I saw the attached warning on the packaging for YCH hops. It states that spent hops are toxic to dogs, implying that non-spent hops are not toxic. The impetus for this question comes from my thought of growing hops. I thought it might be fun. However, if either of my brood dogs, see attached photo, we'll include a photo, I get into them, I'd not only be dead to my wife, but also divorced. Can you shed any clarity on the issue? Well, yes. One, don't get divorced. Two, don't let your dogs die. Three, all hops are toxic to dogs. And it's really actually kind of a breed-specific thing. Not all dogs will have the sort of temperature regulation issues that uh, ingesting hops will impart. It's usually a lot of times like the the sight hounds or the race hounds, like uh, the greyhounds. Greyhounds are notoriously susceptible. Uh, so all hops are toxic. The reason why spent hops are a real problem is I've never seen a dog go anywhere near a hop cone, a hop pellet that wasn't covered in sticky, sweet, gooey wort. So the real problem is, you know, your hounds like to go for sweet things. And, you know, I mean, I think any brewer who's ever had a mash ton left on the ground knows this very well. So the problem is really with the spent hops is the fact that the dogs will actually go for them because of the the sweet word on them. And they really don't seem to bother with hops that aren't uh, otherwise treated and cooked. 
So that's the reason why they, I think they say spent hops because really that's when you have to pay attention. But yes, hops are always toxic to dogs. Don't mess around right. with your hops. Uh, but like I said, if you're growing hops in the, in your backyard or something, I don't think you're gonna have to worry about it. No, and I can I can tell you from uh, experience that uh, my dogs are not interested in hops on the vine at all, and I've never given them a chance to be interested in uh, in spent hops. But yeah, it's it's the sweetness that they're going for. All animals, uh, at least dogs and cats, like sweet stuff. So yeah. keep them away. Yeah, and and by the way, this does go to a very good point. Like you know, we tend to think of spent hops, you know, as something from the boil kettle. But, I mean, this does also mean if you've had dry hops that you've pulled out, but also if you've mash hopped at all, don't let the dogs eat that mash. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, basically, any hops that have been used are have a lot more potential for being attractive to dogs. So there you go. The next question comes from our Igor and buddy, Eric Pierce. And, uh, Eric, we're going to do our best to come up with a decent answer for you. No guarantees. Eric says, guys, a year and a half or so ago, I was measuring out my water adjustments and ran out of calcium chloride. On my way out to get some, I went through the garage and there staring me in the face was a giant bag of calcium chloride. It was the ice melt I used for my driveway. At that point, I had one of those angel devil moments. Oh, come on. It looks the same versus it's not meant for human consumption. The notion of driveway liquor IPA did not seem appealing, let alone the thought of maybe poisoning myself and my family and friends. I decided to go with the angel and drove to the homebrew shop and spent approximately 10 times what the stuff in the garage cost by weight. Given the amount used in a batch of beer, it seems foolish to take the risk. I'm still curious, though. What is the truth behind the cost difference? Are there different processes used to ensure more purity? Are they using a more expensive food-safe process that's not used for the driveway stuff or the products used to increase calcium hardness in a pool? Or is it all the same thing with different avenues for jacking up the price? I know this seems like you'd have to be crazy to use calcium chloride from Home Depot in your beer, but people do crazy things under the gun on a brew day. Any information you can provide to dissuade me and others from being tempted by this foolhardy move would be greatly appreciated. Well, Eric, I'm, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do some guessing here, Eric, uh, because I really don't know, uh, but I hope to do some research and get you a better answer on this. I probably would not go for the driveway stuff, uh, just out of uh, an abundance of caution, uh, pool stuff, uh, the stuff that you buy for, uh, pickles, you know, like pickle crisp. I would say that those would likely be food safe and you would be good to go. I mean, you know, you put it in your pool, there's a chance you're going to ingest it, you're swimming in it. Uh, I would imagine that they'd be pretty careful with impurities there. Uh, I have used my calcium chloride for making pickles and uh, having looked at pickle crisp in the stores, I know that uh, it's pretty pure also. So I would say that those would be interchangeable. And this also brings to mind the guys who have uh, talked about breaking a piece of sheetrock off in their garage and throwing it in their beer when they need uh, gypsum. I don't think I'd do that either. So anyway, Eric, there you go. That's that's my guessing. Uh, I'll do some research and see what I can find out for you about uh, driveway calcium chloride. 
uh, I would say, yeah, it, in, until one of us can uh, confirm exactly what's in it, avoid it. It's always better to be safe than sorry. Yeah, I, I just think back to the history of you know American food safety before the rise of the FDA, and I'm just going to put it out there that the FDA is a good thing for a reason. So I would trust something <laughs> that's had to go through those sorts of processes uh, far more than something that's going to be, uh, well, on your driveway. And by the right. way, awesome name for the IPA. Yeah, driveway liquor. I know. I, I immediately started having uh, visions of that one. So, okay. So, uh, next question comes from Nikki Forster, and it's up to you, Drew. Yeah, we told you you were going to hear from Nikki again. So, Nikki has two questions for us. Uh, one, Denny drinks four ounces of beer a day on his new diet. What happens to the other eight ounces? Uh, the answer is that uh, I don't. I don't drink cans or bottles. It all comes out of a keg. Boring. All right. And number two, do you have any advice or resources on calculating the fermentability slash extract contribution of ingredients added to the secondary? I recently split a five-gallon batch and added a natural flavoring with sucrose, dextrose, fructose to one half and lemon zest to the other. As predicted, the natural flavored batch finished at a lower gravity with a nice dry finish, but I know I would have liked the lemon zest batch better had it finished the same way. Any thoughts? Cheers from the East Coast and come visit. Nikki. Um... Yeah, so, Nikki, I think most of the time, if you're worried about uh, fermentability and you're looking at something with sugar, the real thing that you have to do is kind of figure out and work backwards, since a lot of people don't necessarily give you uh, enough information. It's either work backwards from the calories or work from the grams of sugar listed on a, on the serving chart, if you're provided such a thing on whatever flavoring that you're using. Um So, yeah, if, if I were going for that and you had that idea, but you wanted the lemon zest version as opposed to the the extract then you could just look and figure out okay how much sugar am i adding and i think just go and add that same amount and see if that does the same thing for you you know I, i'm kind of curious how much of this flavoring extract she added because doesn't it seem like it would have to be a fair bit to make any difference in the flavor or fermentability yeah i mean if you're talking just from the sugar yeah I mean, yeah. If you think I mean, most if, most of your extracts, you're probably going to end up adding somewhere around four ounces, yeah. right? And and again, you know, how much lower gravity did it finish at, and can it really be attributed to to that small amount of extract? Mm -hmm. you, you have me confused, Nikki. It's not that I don't trust you, but I'm a little skeptical here. So. Well, right back to us. Tell us exactly how much you used, what the extract was. Let us do a little research on this. Yeah, but I, I still think, I mean, like, look, if if you really want to come down to try and replicate what you're going to get from the, the extract or the natural flavoring, I'm sorry, uh, then, yeah, the right way to do it is basically go and look at the, go and look at the, any of the nutritional information that you can find and replicate by the grams of sugar that they'll give you. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. And our last ingredient question comes from Richard Eulis, who wants to know about hop blending. Richard says, guys, I recently read this fascinating blog post by Scott Janish on how YCH blends their hops for consistency. So this means that when we buy a pound of Simcoe from YCH, what's in the bag is actually a blend of various lots of Simcoe with the goal of giving the brewer what he or she expects from that variety. Do you guys know if other hop sellers do this, such as Farmhouse, Hops Direct, uh, Yakima Valley Hops? 
I ask this because my own anecdotal experience is that hops that come out of the YCH bag always meet or exceed my expectations, while sometimes I get batches from other hop sources that significantly disappoint. The easy answer may just be to simply purchase YCH hops all the time, but they're generally more expensive. I'm willing to pay it, though, if there really is something behind my anecdotal experiences. And thank you so much for the show. I absolutely love it. Well, thanks, Richard. That was very kind of you to say that. So to answer this question, we uh, contacted our good friends at YCH Hops and uh, asked them about their techniques. Uh, we What we didn't do was contact other people to find out what they do. Uh, and that probably is something that we should tackle eventually. But in the meantime, uh, let's uh, see what YCH had to say about their processes. When pelletizing, we process both single lots and blends of lots from the same variety. We use a measure called the Quality Index, or QI, to determine which lots can be processed alone and which are best blended together. The QI takes into account the annual average values for alpha, oil, HSI, that's the hop storage index, and appearance for each variety, and then determines for each lot how far from average it is. This helps us manage multiple parameters at once when deciding if a lot is consistent or true to type. Lots which are typical can be processed alone. Lots with extra high values are out of spec and are mixed with lots which might have a lower oil content, for example. This tends to balance analytics and the sensory profiles between lots. We also can use sensory notes, harvest dates, moisture, and GC markers when choosing how to process each lot to help ensure the creation of balanced blends. This process isn't perfect, but by continuously trying to improve how we use this data and balance the logistic constraints of processing millions of pounds, we get a bit better each year. Lots for homebrew are packaged in-house from our standard commercial inventory. This means sometimes the homebrew lot is the same lot hundreds of brewers have been using, or it's from single-lot pellet runs selected by one brewer. We maintain complete traceability back to the farm, even for homebrew. Okay, so there you go. Basically, uh, confirming that YCH does indeed blend lots to uh, hit an average value, uh, unless the hops are within that average spec already, and also confirming something that I have long said that has been a question for uh, quite a while on homebrew forums. Uh, there's this myth going around that homebrewers get the leftover hops that the commercial brewers don't want. And we can see here that at least from YCH, that isn't the case. Homebrewers get exactly the same YCH hops that uh, commercial brewers get. Uh, again, we can't speak to how other companies do it because we didn't talk to them, but I wouldn't be surprised if they did something similar. Sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, right on. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to uh, wet our throats, and when we come back, we will be getting into some questions about brewing techniques. So stick around. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. 
Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. So it's time for our second round of questions in this all Q&A episode. That's right. All questions, maybe some answers, and round two. <laughs> Fight! Uh, this time we are focusing on questions that are all about techniques. And I'm going to start us off with a Cezanne question because, well, I may. And this one comes from uh, Gino, uh, Gino Papa in Baltimore, Maryland, who says, Denny and Drew, love the show. Thank you. I have a thought slash question on adding sugar to a recipe. Should I account for priming sugar and subtract that from a sugar addition in the kettle? For example, a Saison recipe with one pound sugar, but bottle conditioning to three to three and a half volumes of CO2, uh, that would be over a third of a pound of additional sugar and could thin it out beyond the desired effect. What does the Saison King do if all the CO2 tanks and kegs were not around and you were back to barbaric bottling? Thanks for your time and effort with the show and answering the questions. Keep it coming, Gino. So let me stop and think about this because I have actually never thought about this. This happens. I have. You have. Good. Uh, I'm just going to say uh, to me, I don't think it matters uh, because if you are, if you are doing your bottling, you should have basically already accounted for the sugar you know, sort of mentally. And I also don't think it's going to make that big of a difference in the final, uh, final flavor, just like we were talking about with Nikki's, uh, uh, Nikki's and natural flavoring question in the last section, section. So I, I would not worry about it. Uh, to me, that's part of your recipe. Uh, and I've never really noticed that much of a difference. Yeah. I'm, and that's pretty much what I concluded also is that it just is not enough sugar to really make any difference. So, don't worry about it. Don't include it. Brew your recipe. Add your priming sugar. They're two different things. Yep. There you go. All right. And now we're into a pair of batch sparging questions. You know, I have to answer a Saison question by law. Denny has to answer batch sparging questions by law. <laughs> really? The first one comes from Kevin Hutchison, who says, Hi, Denny. I am having issues with my batch sparge recently. About two months ago, I brewed a double IPA. The initial louder of the first wort went as normal. However, after mixing in the sparge water, it drained for about a minute and stopped. I have had the grain bed get compacted a couple times and thought this was the issue. When I attempted to stir the mash, it was not compacted and the mash tun would not even drain while stirring the mash. Today, I brewed a blonde ale, which I plan to add eight pounds of peaches to in the secondary. This time, I fully opened the ball valve to drain the first runnings and only got a trickle. Again, the grain bed was not compacted, and I was only able to get a small amount of wort to drain while stirring the mash. My first thought was that this was an issue with the ball valve not completely opening, but this was not the case. The grain did not appear to be overmilled either time. This time, I used 10% flaked oats and added a couple handfuls of rice hulls. Any idea on what could be causing this all of a sudden? I've had the same stainless steel braid for the last 20 batches with no issue. Yeah, well, see, Kevin, that last line is what kills me. I had an answer all set until I read that. Um, is it possible that you maybe have, like, some grain stuck in your ball valve? 
Uh, I sometimes, you know, people misinterpret my directions to do the runoff as fast as you can. Um, the, really the way to think of it is as fast as your loudering system will allow. I generally start by opening my valve up just a little bit. And uh, once I see that uh, the runnings have cleared, I open it up the rest of the way and go full speed. But I'm really kind of baffled about why you're using the same braid and it has worked in the past and suddenly isn't working now. All I can think of is that uh, there must be a clog somewhere where the braid connects to your valve or within the valve itself. So I would say start by disassembling everything. Uh, if you don't find anything in there, put it back together. Sometimes, you know, in the electronics world I come from, just taking something apart and putting it back together fixes it. So who knows? Maybe you'll be lucky. Uh, but, uh, try disassembling everything first, uh, cleaning it thoroughly and then, uh, get back to us and let us know if that worked. Yeah. And I'd be curious since he says, you know, it's not a case of compaction because he's stirring and everything's loose. I'm wondering, yeah, if it's not a physical block actually in the braid, if there's maybe something different about the particular malt that he's used in these past two batches, you know, maybe there's, you know, something going on where the malt is actually clogging up the, the braid itself you know, from the outside. Probably not, but it's, it's still a possibility. Yeah, it's it, it, it's a pretty long shot, but it's really hard to say. I do agree with your assertion of uh, you take it apart, put it back together. In, in the computer world, that's rebooting the machine. Yeah, that's right. Exactly, exactly. So the next batch sparging question comes from Brad Vincent, and Brad says, My question is around sparging. There are opinions I have heard that say that if your sparge running's gravity is below 1.010, then you will extract tannins from the grain in the mash tun. Do you, in fact, extract tannins when you go below a gravity of 1.010? Should you stop taking runnings if you go below 1.010? If tannins are extracted, then how will these tannins affect the taste of your final product? If you stop your runnings at 1.010 and find you are below your desired volume and a bit high for your pre-boil OG, is it safe to top up your boil kettle volume with just plain old water? Thanks for any insight you might have, and greetings from Durban, South Africa. I belong to a homebrew club called Durban Homebrewers, and we really appreciate everything you guys do for the homebrewing community. If you ever come to South Africa, please visit us in Durban for a beer. Hey, I certainly will, Brad. Okay, so first of all, the advice to stop taking runnings uh, when your sparge gets below 1.010 uh, is mainly from the fly sparging world. There's a darn good chance that in batch sparging, your gravity will never get down that low and you will never have to worry about it. And nextly, in the fly sparging world, as you continually add more sparge water, you are diluting the ability of the grains to buffer the pH, right? Uh, the grain itself will automatically pull the pH down. The darker the grain is, the more it will pull the pH down towards the correct range. So um, 
when you batch sparge, what you're doing is adding all that sparge water at once, and your pH will remain constant throughout the runoff. When you batch sparge, you're adding the water gradually, and you're diluting uh, the power of the grains to change the pH. So that's more, again, the whole thing comes from the fly sparging world. Uh, and my thinking is that that particular gravity is an indication of the pH rising. It's not necessarily the gravity itself that's causing the problem. Should you stop taking runnings if you go below that? Heck yes, uh, I certainly would because, again, it's better to be safe than sorry. Uh, if tannins are extracted, how will these tannins affect the taste of the final product? This is uh, something that a lot of people don't seem to realize. Tannins do not affect the taste of the product. Tannins provide a drying mouthfeel, like when you chew on uh, grape skin, grape seeds, that kind of thing. Uh, tannins are not a flavor in and of themselves. Uh, if you stop your runnings at 1.010 and find your below your desired volume, can you add water to top up? Absolutely. I've done it a bunch of times. I'll bet Drew's done it a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. There, There is no problem there. So, again, if you're batch sparging, it's probably not going to be a problem. If you're afraid it is, monitor your final runnings. If you get below 1.010, stop taking them, but I don't think you ever will. Uh, anything to add to that? Yeah, just remember tannins are an astringency, so that's how you'll you'll know that you got them. And if you really want to know what tannins taste like, go and chew on some of your spent grain. That's what that's when you'll get the sensation that they impart. Uh, right. And then uh, the other part I will also say is remember that you know volume is not your goal here, right? You know, it's good beer is your goal. So if you end up being a little short, you're a little short. It is what it is. But in this yep. case, as you're saying, if your uh, OG is a little high, water uh, water makes a perfectly fine dilution. I've done that before. And the real key, though, is remember, make sure that your water is free of chlorine that you're using for your top-up. So no chlorine, no chloramine. You want it to be treated. So don't go add just raw tap water if your tap water is treated with chlorine or chloramine. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, buddy, you get the next one. Okay. Our next one comes from Grant Sellers, who says, Hey, guys. My question has to do with split batch fermentation in five-gallon stainless steel corny kegs. I've been brewing since 2009, and I recently ditched the buckets and plastic carboys and have switched to fermenting in my stainless steel corny kegs, which I love. I have brewed four-gallon batches recently to allow enough headspace for croisin during fermentation. My question is, I've read in the past that too much headspace in the fermenter can lead to issues including infection. I would like to keep brewing five-gallon batches and split the batch into two different corny kegs, uh, two and a half gallons each, to test different hop combinations on the same grain bill. Do you see that having that much headspace in the corny being an issue? Also, with only 2.5 gallons inside the corny, can I ferment without a blow-off since cornies can hold more pressure and would help benefit to ferment under CO2 pressure to help fill that headspace? Thanks, Grant. Uh, okay, Grant, uh, headspace will not lead to infections. Uh, so... Don't worry about that. As long as your vessel is fermented and you're not exchanging air freely with the outside, you're not going to get an infection from extra headspace. The place where you have to watch for headspace is when you're making wines or ciders and meads. That's when the topping up actually does become important. Uh, but that's for a whole other uh, episode. Actually, I think that was in the Brew Files episode. So pay attention to that. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, you're perfectly fine to do uh, your two and a half gallons in two different uh, five gallon carboys or five gallon corny kegs. So you're fine there. The real reason that you'll hear a lot of people sort of uh, poo poo on uh, fermenting in five gallon corny kegs is because of uh, uh, height to vo- uh, height to width ratios uh, and way that affects yeast circulation and everything else. It's part of the science behind like the Nathan fermenters that we all see nowadays or their derivatives. Uh, so that's the reason why you'll hear a lot of people say uh, off things about uh, five gallon corny kegs as fermenters. I actually ferment in 10 gallon corny kegs because I love them for a lot of the obvious reasons. And for your part of the question about fermenting without using a blow off tube, because corny kegs can take a lot of pressure. Don't do it. I haven't done, <laughs> I haven't done the math yet, but we have to realize that the fermentation is putting out a lot of CO2, you know, when it's active. There's a lot of CO2 being involved. And yeah, you're right. Corny kegs are designed to take 130 PSI. Having said that, I would never want to risk having a pressurizing bomb in my garage or in my brewery or in your closet or wherever it is that you put your kegs when you're fermenting. So don't do that. It's super easy. If you want to open ferment like I do when I'm doing my ales, pop the PRT open, slap some foil around it. You're done. Now, if you really do want to do pressure fermentation... You need to go build or buy a spunding valve, uh, which is really a pressure dial sensitive PRT or sorry, PRV. And there just happens to be plans for that in experimental home brewing. Yeah. So get a spunding valve if you want to do fermentation under pressure. Remember that the different yeast strains will have different uh, impacts from fermenting under pressure. So just keep that in mind. But yeah, don't don't seal down your corny keg and, and just pray that the stainless steel walls hold. Don't do that. We don't want to lose right. brewers. Yeah. And you know what? I often ferment the two and a half gallon batches from my Zymatic and a five gallon corny keg. And all I do is just open the pressure release valve. Like Drew said, put some foil over the top of it. You're good to go. That's all you need to do. Yep. But don't get lazy. When the, when the corrosion starts to fall, make sure you, you seal everything up because yeah. Yeah. Again, better safe than sorry. Probably you'd be okay, but why take that chance? Yep. So I'm going to take two questions here because the first one is just darn simple. And it comes from Joe Rosenblatt, who wants to know about kegging his lager. And Joe says, if I don't plan on bottling, can I rack my Oktoberfest from primary into a keg and cold crash lager it in there and then serve it after several weeks? Answer is, heck yes. Why not? Uh, I, we both do it all the time, right? Yeah. The only thing, the only downside is that at least for your first pour or so, you'll probably get some yeast from the pickup tube, but whatever. Nobody has to see that first point. (laughs) That's right. It either goes down the drain or you drink it yourself. So, uh, the next question is a little bit more involved. It comes from Kenneth Knott and he says, I'm hoping you can expand a bit on how and when to take pH measurements during the brew day and what to expect at different points along the way. Here was my recent experience and I'd like to know if that's what I should expect. I use Beersmith for all my salt additions and pH adjustment. I've compared to brew and water and they're close enough that I'll just use Beersmith since it's easier to work with whatever floats your boat buddy uh 
I add all my salt additions and lactic acid for my pH adjustment as I'm working my way up to strike temp. In this case, Beersmith was predicting an unadjusted mash pH of 5.68 and had me add 4.9 milliliters of lactic acid to bring it down to 5.4. I probably put closer to 5.2 milliliters of lactic acid in using a 3 milliliter syringe since I felt okay overshooting. <laughs> it's the American way, buddy, right? If a little's good, more is better. First time I took a pH measurement was prior to the grain addition. I didn't know what to expect at this point exactly, but definitely not the pH 3.9 reading I got. I thought the grain addition would drop the pH, but how I hoped it would bring it up. Next reading was about 10 minutes into the mash, and it had come up to pH 4.17, climbing, but still way below what I expected. Next, at about 30 minutes, the mash pH was about 5.2, so happily I'm now in the mash range I wanted, though a bit low of my target. I have inquired here and there on the forum, and it seems I'm alone in taking so many pH measurements. Most just take it at 20 minutes into the mash and go with that. Everyone seemed surprised by the trajectory of the pH during the mash, though one guy did say that it was exactly the trajectory it should take. A few notes, I'm using a pretty good pH meter, and it was carefully calibrated before use. Also, I cool the solution in chilled shot glasses before all measurements, as I know pH is temperature sensitive. Still, high temps would raise the pH, not lower it, so that would not account for my observations in any case. I would love to hear your thoughts and specifics on how you approach pH adjustments and measurements on your brew day. Thanks. Whew. Yeah, buddy, you know what? You take a whole heck of a lot more pH measurements than anybody else I know. Uh, first place, there's absolutely no point in taking a pH of the water after you add your salts and acids other than just out of curiosity. Um, it, it's really not going to tell you anything else. Martin Brungard on the AHA forum, who is my personal water guru, has stated that pH will tend to rise over the course of the mash and that, believe it or not, it will tend to settle in the correct 5.2 to 5.4 area. Now, I'm sure that I'm talented enough I could do something to screw that up, but for a normal person, that's the way it's going to work. So what I do when I take a pH measurement is to wait about 20 minutes or so into the mash, pull my sample, uh, cool it down till it's in the mid-60s, and take my pH reading then. And that's the only pH reading I'm taking. I have a tendency not to even bother taking pH readings anymore because I've found that uh, brune water is so accurate that uh, the pH I expect is what I get. So most of the time, personally, I just don't even mess with it anymore. But that can be uh, due to the fact that uh, I've become a little bit more lackadaisical as the years have gone by. Um, so, Drew, what what's your method? I have a method. Who says I have a method? Uh, okay, that that's what I expected. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I used to be in the same boat as you. I, I would measure the pH once or twice. And then once I started to dial into what I thought was right, I pretty much uh, kept going. Now, I I feel like there are times when I need to get back into it, particularly because LA's water is so volatile because we tend to steal water from everywhere. And so it, it changes over the course of the year. So that's why I do actually now have a water testing kit. And as I've started getting more brewing sessions back uh, as we're clearing out projects, 
I'm going to do a little bit more observations just to make sure I understand how LA water changes over the course of the year. Right. And my water comes from a well. It's extremely good quality and it's extremely consistent. I get it to test it every couple of years and it always ends up just like it was the last test. So I'm fairly confident, especially if I'm brewing a recipe that I've brewed before, that I don't need to worry about it at all. If you're going to check it, wait at least 20 or 30 minutes, check it, see what happens. Uh, I would not make any rash adjustments at that time. I would just wait till the next time you brew and uh, deal with it then. Yeah, it's it's always, you got to be careful with anything dealing with pH and acidity is because things swing quickly, uh, far more quickly than you than you think they would. It's It makes like trying to adjust the temperature of your mash with cold water look like child's play. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, the pH, you may not be able to get a reading of it quickly, but the pH will change quickly. So, you know, do it once, call it good, hope for the best. And if you miss it, fix it the next time. There you go. All right. Next question comes from Kevin McAvoy, who uh, is asking about a sour off layer. He says, I recently tried my hand at my first ever kettle sour, a simple 4.5% golden ale that I pitched good belly lactobacillus shots into to make a sour wort. Everything went smoothly, but when I opened my first bottle, I detected an odor I didn't expect. I'm not great at describing smells, but I'd say it's kind of a harsh alcohol plasticky thing. It comes through a bit in the taste, but it's predominantly a smell. I can't seem to correlate it with any of the common beer off flavors that are described online and in books, and I wonder if the fact that it's a sour further complicates things. There seems to be very little info about off flavors on sours online. Might this be something that ages out in the bottle or in lagering? Or is there something else I could should be considering? I followed sanitation best practices as usual. Any thoughts? Thanks for your help and your hard work in the hobby, Kevin. Well, Kevin, yeah, kettle sour and plasticky uh, alcoholy flavors. I mean, those to me are phenols and fusels. And what I'm going to ask because, and this is the information I think will uh, send you down this way is, I usually think of plasticky aromas as being a sign of an infection. Now, obviously, we're talking about a kettle sour here, so uh, some infection is kind of the point. But what I'm wondering is if you didn't have some sort of critter get into the beer after the kettle souring, or if there's a possibility that kettle souring really does require, in order for it to be pulled off correctly, a real dedicated control about both the temperature of the initial ferment in the kettle and also the amount of oxygen in the kettle. Particularly things like lactobacillus, when given any sort of uh, oxygen, tend to produce not the best aromas. And they are largely uh, aromatic compounds. So uh, think about your mash tun after you've let it sit for a day, if you were silly enough to do that. That sort of stuff really is kind of the thing that you get from lactobacillus exposed to oxygen. So my first guess would be to take a look at your... uh, your post-boil sanitation, make sure that you really didn't get anything in there. And assuming that's not the case, then I would look at the process that you used for holding your your kettle sour at temperature and how much oxygen may have gotten uh, into the mix at that point in time. That, to me, is always the big trick. Yeah, uh, definitely so. And I'm I am by no means uh, any kind of expert on kettle souring, but that all makes sense. There you go. All right, next question. Okay, this one comes from Kyle Treadway, and he says, Hi, Danny and Drew. I love your podcast. We love you too, Kyle. My question involves sanitizing a carboy with star sand and untreated tap water. 
The tap water in my area is treated with chlorine, so I use Camden tablets prior to brewing to take care of any chlorine or chloramine in the water. I have not been treating the water I use to sanitize my carboy and other equipment. Will this cause off flavors in my beer? Thanks, and keep up the great work, Kyle. Kyle, in short, no. No problem, man. You're dumping the water out. Uh, there's should be little to no uh, chlorine, chloramine left in there anyway. So, uh, you know, although my water is not chlorinated here in uh, Casa Notai, I have used uh, chlorinated water for sanitizing uh, carboys, fermenters, um, not a problem at all. Uh, there was in a discussion recently and people were extremely uptight about this saying, well, you know, there could be a little chlorine. It, it ain't going to matter, man. Yeah. And, and I'd agree. I mean, I think given the amount of time that people have spent, you know, actually making beers with bleach as a sanitizer in their carboys and not necessarily getting a full rinse on things and producing mostly okay beer, I think a little bit of uh, chlorine or chloramine in your uh, sanitizer water is going to be fine. Now, of course, don't forget that if you really want to sort of maximize your shelf life of your products like Star Sand and Sandy Clean, they are best blended with actually distilled water or RO water, and they will hold their pH and therefore their uh, killing power for a much longer period of time. So if you want to really kind of stretch your Star Sand budget out there, then uh, just go and spring for some distilled water and use that. Yeah, right. And uh, I've even gotten uh, now to the point where, it, you know, I use buckets to ferment in and I keep my star sand, uh, if I'm not using iota for, I keep the star sand in a spray bottle filled with distilled water and I just spray down the inside of my buckets and hardly takes any at all and it stays good for a long time. So anyway, uh, yeah, especially in that case, using chlorinated water wouldn't matter at all if you were just spraying it down. And like I said, you're dumping the water out, so not a big deal. Mm -hmm. All right. The next question comes from Sam's Loonsbury. He says, uh, Danny and Drew, I have a quick question regarding how I should handle portioning my beer off when I want to do some aging slash spicing slash dry hopping, etc. on only a portion of the beer. Currently, I brew about three and a half gallon batches in a five gallon fermenter. And since one of my favorite things about brewing, especially since going all grain, is experimenting with my own recipes. A lot of times I like to put one gallon of the beer into a secondary fermentation of sorts with some experimental additions such as a spice, fruit, or dry hop while then bottling the rest of it. My question, however, is when would be the best time to do this portioning of the beer? I think perhaps it makes the most sense to do it as the fermentation is winding down, similar to a typical secondary fermentation. But I'm worried that if I transfer off one gallon through my racking port, the remaining two and a half gallons would suck in a lot of oxygen in the fermenter to replace the now empty headspace. The alternative would be to ferment the whole batch to completion and do the portioning off on bottling day. But I like to cold crash before bottling, and I wonder if I'll get some weirdness in the one gallon portion since it would have been crashed and then warmed back up for the secondary. Any tips would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, Sam. Sam, don't worry about it, buddy. <laughs> you know what i was about to say sam is worrying too much yeah literally i think the best way to do it and this is what i do all the time too is bulk ferment the beer get it ready and when you go to packaging uh separate it out and do your portioning at that point in time and i don't think you'll experience any sort of weirdness with you know sort of your your split here of laying it ferment down and then come back just uh make sure you know for sandy's sake flush your your vessel that you're taking your new portion of beer into with a lot of co2 
you know, just so that you have a little bit of extra insurance right there uh, to prevent again to prevent any sort of oxidation. What about you? Yeah, that's exactly what I would suggest and what I do myself. Um, there is no reason to split it earlier. You won't be gaining anything at all, and you won't be harming anything by waiting until the fermentation is done and splitting it at that point. So make it easy for yourself, Sam, and give that brain a rest. Uh, you're thinking too hard. Our final question in the technique section comes from Stephen from Rhode Island, and he says... I've been thinking about upgrading my cooler mash tun to a stainless steel direct fire mash tun with a pump to do continuous mash recirculating and step mashing. Is it worth the investment? Boy, now, Stephen, you know, you are the only one who can decide if it's going to be worth the investment to you. Uh, I will tell you that I have a several, actually, I have several cooler systems that are just straight single infusion systems. I have a, a couple other fancier systems that I can do step mashing and even recirculation in. And to tell you the truth, I don't see any benefits to doing the step mashing and recirculation. If it's something you think you want to do just because, or the system sounds like it'd be cool to build or something like that, go for it, man. It's your system. It's home brewing. You get to decide but remember, it's the brewer that makes the beer, not the equipment. And don't assume that your beer will automatically be better if you have a more complicated system and do more work. Right. But hey, if you're a gearhead and the gear makes the beer more fun for you, go for it. I, That's I don't what say I problem. said. Uh, nope. I mean, hey, look, you're talking to the guy who bought a can seamer for himself. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I will I will warn you, though, that uh, there are many people out there who, uh, quote, upgrade their system, thinking that uh, it's going to make better beer and uh, and give them a better brew day and discover that the opposite is true. So take that into account. But like Drew said, if you're into the gear as much as the beer, then go for it, man. It's it's your decision to make. All right. Well, hey, I think it's time for a quick break. Some more music. I think it's time for a quick break indeed. I need a nap. There you go. All right. We'll be back uh, in short order with some more questions. Uh, well, a lot more questions that you guys just you know keep pinging us with. So hopefully we can make up some more answers. But we'll be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Did you miss us? We're back. 
We hope that you enjoyed the musical break and the, and the sponsors. We're fed. We're ready to tackle more questions now. And uh, time to have a beer. Hey, Danny, you going to have a beer? I want a beer. Uh, I want a beer, too, but I'm going fin- to finish this before I have a beer. Uh, fine. Be that way. Okay. Dedicated. All right. Uh, so, hey, but speaking of beer, that's why we're here. Yes. So We're speaking of beer. Yeah, let's tackle a bunch of questions about, well, recipes and styles. So, uh, Denny, why don't you kick us off? Okay, this question comes from Brian Ellis, and he says, I wanted to first say thank you. Unfortunately, in the last week and a half, I've lost both my father and stepfather. Oh, sorry, Brian, you have our condolences, man. And I've spent over 30 hours driving back and forth between Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Indiana. I've been listening to the podcast the entire time, and you've both kept me and my two golden retrievers company for the long hauls. Well, man, glad we can help out in these uh, troubled times. Enough of the sappy stuff and down to business. I'm wrestling with a recipe design, and while I'd love to take the time to brew multiple batches or split the batches, I don't have that flexibility or patience. I want to brew a stout with espresso and vanilla bean, and I'm trying to figure out when to add it and an appropriate quantity for a five-gallon batch. I've read several methods from adding to the end of the boil, cold brew, adding coarse grounds or whole beans to the secondary, and on and on. I'm leaning towards the cold brew due to the lower acidity and harshness of coffee, which while I love it hot in the cup, I don't want that harshness in my beer. I was thinking roughly 16 to 32 ounces of cold brew with coarse ground espresso beans in the secondary. Thoughts? Yeah, um, I'd say that uh, you're on the right track there, Brian. That's kind of what I do, too. I will use about five ounces of coarsely cracked coffee beans. I don't actually grind them. I just kind of put them in a bag and hit them with a rolling pin a few times. Put that into secondary and after about three days start tasting it to see what it's like. Uh, You get quite a bit of aroma that way and you do get a little bit of flavor, not a whole lot. So when I'm packaging, I add uh, more coffee directly to the bottling bucket or the keg that I'm putting the beer into, and I do that to taste. And I do that either by adding some, tasting, seeing if I need to add more, or my uh, my other method is to pour four two-ounce samples add a different measured amount of whatever I'm adding to each one of those two-ounce samples, taste it, decide which I like best, and scale that up to the entire batch size. One thing I've discovered about working with coffee is that uh, I need to cut back on my bittering hops just a bit to account for the bitterness I'm going to get from the coffee. Uh, Even if I use cold brew, that's still going to be adding some bitterness. Now, my method is to uh, brew test batches until I get it right. You say you don't have the time or patience for that. So you're going to have to just take a guess and hope for the best. But that's why the uh, the four samples with a different amount of coffee added to each one might be the way for you to try. Anything to add to that, Mr. Drew? I like cold brew. Yeah, I know no, you do. Literally, that's all I uh, that's all I drink. I'm either drinking cold brew, soda water, or beer. And <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, I like cold brew. I really like the flavors that you get from cold brew, so that would be my primary choice, and I would add that into the into the keg. 
So, but to your point, I do think there is something extra that you get from a little bit of dry beaning. You know, so if you want more complexity, do that. However, if you want something that just kind of gives you that sort of, you know, big flat mesa of coffee, cold brew is, to my mind, the way to go. Yep. Yep. I agree. And and a combination of the two, I think, works really well. So you figured it out for yourself, buddy. Good luck. And uh, sorry for your recent losses. Yeah, indeed. Our next question comes from Rudy Rodriguez. Hey, guys, longtime listener, best beer podcast ever. Listen to it on my way to work. Anyways, my question was that what other things can you use in a beer instead of hops? I remember Denny saying something about a spruce beer, and I saw a video of a guy using the new growth from Sequoia Trees. Sounds like fun to make one. Any info would be awesome. Well, Rudy, I mean, look, you can use anything to make beer. Uh, you know, obviously <laughs> and, a lot of beer. And, and you probably have. Yeah. So you, you'll see a lot of people talk about things like Groot, Groot blends, right? You know, the sort of the mythical church controlled blends of herbs and spices uh, that they use to, you know, give beer its bitterness before hops were allowed. Uh, hops, of course, were that, you know, pernicious weed, uh, vile and Protestant. Um, but if you go and you look at like what's in there, you know, the classic blends of things that you always hear is, you know, yarrow, uh, mercagale or sweet gale, uh, marsh rosemary. Really, a lot of just any sort of uh, heather, any any sort of herb that actually lends sort of an acid bite or or bitter uh, bitter tannin charge. Now, here's the dirty little secret, though. A lot of people kind of forget that hops were a part of a lot of group ones too. <laughs> so even even uh, traditional groups weren't necessarily all just uh, hop free. So uh, things I've played around with in the past, uh, those things that we just listed out, heather included. Uh, Lavender, but you have to be really careful with lavender because lavender will make everything taste like perfumed soap in about two seconds. Uh, I've done beers with uh, taking sort of a, a chili and ginger type of uh, approach to it. Use uh, citrus rinds, you know, to get the bitter pith. You know, so just more than just the oils, get the bitter pith in there. Uh, black pepper, coriander. You know, all these things can actually lend kind of an edge. I think the weirdest one I uh, ever did was I did uh, my Sumerian beer that was kind of based on the hymn to Nikazi, and that one included uh, coriander and black pepper and radishes, amongst other things. Wow. <laughs> you know, now, I, I guess I'm really not surprised knowing you. Nope. Well, and I will also recommend that if you're really interested, since you re made two references to trees in here, both spruce and sequoia, if you're really interested in that, go and pick up the Scratch Brewers Almanac. It came out earlier this year, and they do a lot of talking about brewing seasonally, but brewing with ingredients that you can find in the woods, including a lot of recipes in there uh, talking about tree barks. Because remember, tree barks also will give uh, tannins and can make a bitter tea. So go pick up the Scratch uh, Scratch Brewer's Almanac, and that will also give you a lot of guidance. Yeah, and another uh, book you might want to look into is uh, from Stan Hieronymus. I believe it's called Brewing Local. Lots of ideas uh, in there also. So uh, the one thing I do know is that most people advise avoiding things like pine because it will make your beer taste like turpentine, or so I'm told. So, uh, you know, I would say just don't go there. Well, you have to be careful. I mean, things like rosemary, for instance, is the same thing as, you know, terpenes. Uh, but you can brew very successfully with rosemary. It's just you have to be kind of careful with the amount that you're using. Right. Exactly. Okay. Next question comes from David Christman up in my neck of the woods in Seattle, who says, 
Hi guys, love the podcast and keep up the good work. I suspect this one will be more for Denny than Drew, but here goes. Have you ever had a beer that on your first attempt you got very close to what you were going for and were very happy with it, but wasn't quite what you wanted? I have a recipe that I'm really happy with how it turned out, a low-gravity rye saison, but it wasn't very dry, breaking Drew's saison commandment one, and didn't have a whole lot of rye flavor, which I had wanted. With those things said, it's still the beer that I'm most proud of brewing to this date, but I'm not sure if I should go with the if-it-ain't-broke-don't-fix-it method of thinking or not. Have you ever had a recipe like this that you were proud of as is, but had multiple ways to iterate on it and make something better, and how did you deal with it? Thanks a lot for the info. I listen to most of the podcasts the day they're posted, and always enjoy hearing what you two are thinking. David from Seattle. Bonus question. How's that American Mild recipe going? Thought about adding some malted or flaked rye or wheat to improve the lack of body due to low alcohol content. Uh, I'll take that one first because that's easy. Uh, yeah, I have, David. Uh, it's not going very quickly because I just cannot find time to brew these days. Uh, but it is high on the list of things I need to get back to work on. So the other thing, to get back to your main question, uh, yeah, I mean, you say if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it sounds like it's broke, man. You didn't get the beer that you had in your head. So why not start tweaking it? I, again, I do this all the time. I love it. I find it fascinating and uh, really drives me to think through a recipe more. So, yeah, go for it. Um, I would say in your case, uh, when you said that it wasn't as dry as you would like and it didn't have a whole lot of rye flavor, uh, I would add some more malted rye I because I think that malted rye gives you more flavor than flaked. And I would probably add a little bit of sugar to it uh, in the in the maybe like quarter to half pound area to start with. Brew it again, analyze it, see if you got what you want. If not, tweak one of those things and try it again. That's what I do. I love doing it. I find it fascinating. Uh, Drew doesn't have the same laser focus that I do, so he doesn't feel that way, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah see there's the lack of laser focus <laughs> well no i yes i have adhd what do you want give me something shiny <laughs> I, I i i have always i have always freely admitted to being a brewer's magpie a brewer's magpie yeah always attracted to the shiny and the new oh yeah right okay i get it uh yeah you know uh david uh you know Go for it, man. What do you got to lose? It's just beer. You can always make more. And uh, it sounds like from your uh, your email that uh, you got close, so you're not going to screw anything up and make it worse by doing it. So go right ahead. Okay, buddy, you get the last one of the recipe questions. Yeah, and then we're going to break it right into styles. So the yep. last recipe question comes from Tyler Eichner, uh, talking about barrels of fun and talking about being a brewer's magpie. This is up my alley. So... Last fall, my friend and I brewed an imperial Mexican stout with Belgian chocolate, cinnamon sticks, ancho chilies, and arbol chili vodka extract, and aged it in a first-time-use five-gallon bourbon barrel. See, this is exactly like what we were talking about with Randy the other week on the Brews Files. That's right. Uh, uh, the ABV of the fermented beer going into the barrel was already around 12.5%, and after the barrel, 
let's just say there's some pretty potent stuff. Yeah, a fresh barrel will generally give you about 1% to 2% ABV increase. So keep that in mind. We bottled it in the winter, added a packet of EC1118 to the bottling bucket. That's a wine yeast. But the beer is never carbonated. In the spring, in an attempt to rescue this batch of beer, we measured out and dosed rehydrated EC1118 into each bottle and brought the whole batch upstairs into a warm room. A few months later, and nothing. When force carbonated via a carbonator cap, this beer is hands down one of the best things we've ever made to date. Straight from the bottle, though, it is still disappointingly flat. Is there anything we can do to rescue this batch of beer? Make a starter of healthy yeast and dose from there. Try another strain. Rouse and or heat the bottles. I would love to be able to share this delicious beer with others, but I'm sadly at a loss at what to do next. Love the podcast. Thanks. Tyler in uh, Perkisi, Pennsylvania. And bonus question is, uh, we have since aged a spice cider, a quad, and a triple in the barrel in that order, and all three tasted like apples and cinnamon. Is there any way to clean out those flavors, or perhaps is it time to try our hand at a sour beer? Well, let's tackle the bonus question first. Uh, well, you can always rinse and wash out the barrel, but those flavors may have soaked into the wood, and cinnamon in particular is a, well, that's a pretty persnickety and persistent one. So, uh, a blowtorch may be your best bet. Yeah, you could char the barrel, but you'd have to take the thing apart in order to do that. Char? So, uh, hell, I'm talking about turning it into firewood. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but I would say if you, if you don't want to deal with that flavor anymore or you, you don't think you can, you're already getting close to that magical point of, you know, your barrel is going to bound to become sour. So might as well, you know, just embrace the change before the change embraces you. Now, back to the question about the, the mole stout here. Uh, the Mayan apocalypse uh, type of idea. Uh, yeah, you're looking at a beer that's probably close to, well, you said 12.5 and figure about another 2% from the barrel, so 14.5%. That's a big beer. That's a really big beer. And so I'm not surprised that you're having uh, problems with the carbonation. Now, one thing, uh, first off, I'm going to make an assumption here. Mm. Denny, Denny is going to scoff at this. I'm assuming you naturally added sugar to the bottle. Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not to this out from. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to scoff, but that's just one of the thoughts that I had. Is when you added the extra sugar, did you or the extra yeast? Did you add more sugar also? Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm not seeing any notes about you know the beer tasting sweet. So here's the problem. I I'm I know people get obsessed with the idea of using wine yeast to do carbonation. I don't like it. I never have, so I don't. Uh, I don't tend to do it. Uh, I've always had really great luck, and you know, Saint Gambrinus and Nkasi have smiled on me whenever I've done stupidly potent beers and tried to bottle them. Now, as for what you can do, well, I think you already have the answer in front of you, and it's not going to be the answer that you want, which is you're going to have to force carbonate this. Now, there are a couple ways that you could go about doing this. So, I'm going to assume that you have a keg, since you have a five gallon barrel. If you do. Flood a keg with CO2 and very carefully open and decant the bottles into the keg. Like use a, a sanitized funnel with a long hose that goes all the way down to the bottom of the ke uh, keg. Carefully pour all the beers back in. It's a pain in the butt, I know. And then seal that puppy up and force carbonate it. And then if you absolutely have to have bottles, go counter pressure bottle fill or beer gun those bottles with freshly carbonated beer. If that's not what you want to do, then I would say go and do your carbonator crap cap trick. I'm going to assume that you're not going to be popping, you know, multiples of these every week. So just carbonate them as you go. 
That's my answer. Because I don't think you're going to get the yeast to be able to do anything in this environment. How about you, Danny? Yeah, you know, I, I would say that probably that's going to be the uh, pragmatic solution. I don't really feel like the alcohol content is a real issue because I've carbonated barley wine with that much alcohol or more just by, you know, sugar and yeast. Um, maybe it's something with the EC1118. I've always just used USO5 for it, but that's a that's a pretty long shot also. So, you know, if you've added sugar and yeast and it still doesn't carbonate, then you really don't have any choice. You're going to have to force carbonate it one way or the other, right? Yeah, and I mean, champagne yeast is what it is. Uh, I think, I, I just think at this point in time, trying to throw more yeast into it isn't going to get you what you want. Your environment is either too toxic or it has the wrong blend of sugars in it or, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe there's a magical property to EC1118 that it's sensitive to chili extracts. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all, right? Yeah, it doesn't want to operate in a capsaicin uh, intense environment. <laughs> right. But yeah, yeah, I would get I would get into a keg, I would force carbonate it. It's it's the surest way that you're going to have to uh, to deal with it. Otherwise, you're just going to keep looking at those bottles and sort of mewing disappointedly at them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, we're going to swing into the style questions and uh just to give Drew's voice a break, I'm going to start uh, by reading this first one, and then I'll let him answer it. Okay. So, first question comes from Ken Kazmierski, who says, Hi, Denny and Drew. First, I have to say that the podcasts are great. In my opinion, your format is the best out there. I always look forward to a new podcast, and it makes my one-hour commute to work or back home a little less hectic. Thank you so much, Ken, and we will make sure that your bonus gifts are sent out soon. Uh, but don't hold your breath. Now, on to my question. I will be able to have our homebrew served at my son's engagement party in November and have to start my planning now. We plan on serving our three most popular brews, a milk stout, an IPA, and a cream ale. Drew's cream ale recipe, of course. Yeah. We do not keg and we'll be bottling six gallons of each. I know that the IPA loses its hop intensity after six weeks or so and plan that beer to be brewed and bottled last. I also know that my milk stout stays fresh for quite some time. However, I have no clue as to how long the cream ale will stay fresh and presentable. I never can keep any on hand here as everyone grabs them up when they're available. Again, Drew, thanks for the fine recipe. What kind of shelf life can I expect from the cream ale? I'd say probably better than you expect, but not as long as a stout. Uh, can you get a little bit more exact? Yeah, I mean, I've kept cream ales around uh, cold for, you know, several months, like four, four or five months. I mean, by the time you get to five months, it's a little dodgy. But no, I mean, I think you could very easily keep the cream ale around for three, four months, uh, no problem. And of course, all that is going to be predicated on the idea that you're going to bottle it and then keep it nice and cold. Because remember, cold is beer's friend until you need to taste it. <laughs> yeah, remember the three things that you need to avoid are light, heat, and oxygen. Okay, light easy to do. Put it in brown bottles, keep them in a the case, something like that. Heat, keep them cold. Not not a big problem there. Oxygen is what you're really going to have to watch out for. Um, be as careful as you can about oxygen pickup when you make and especially package the beer, and then keep it cold and. I would say easily three, four months, huh? Yeah. I mean, cream ale, 
It's going to stay around. I mean, it's you think about the way that most people brew cream ale. It's effectively a lager. And, right. You know, those lagers are going to be able to age for a while. But yeah, I mean, four months, not a problem. So brew yeah. it now. Put it in the yeah. fridge. You'll be good. <laughs> really? Okay. And uh, Drew, you get this last one. I'll let you read that. Alrighty. So we go from a cream ale recipe, you know, which seemed to be well received. And I love that to a Saison question. So this one comes from Leandra Myers, who says, Hi, Danny Drew. This is a question for Drew as it pertains to Saisons. I have a brew jacket for temperature control. Brilliant product, by the way. Uh, okay. I've never actually tried it. I've heard uh, good things from it. Yeah, yeah. I have a friend who uses them, loves them. Yeah. And I want to brew a Saison and avoid the famous stall. However, the brew jacket requires using a blow-off tube. So foil top open fermentation isn't an option. I was wondering if you thought I could avoid the stall by using an upright top foiled blow off instead of a foil on top of carboy. If the stall is due to CO2 back pressure, I believe this could be a workaround as a thick blow off capped with aluminum foil should allow pressure for CO2 release. I'm interested in your thoughts on this or any alternative you can think to provide for similar conditions. Thank you, Leandro. Uh, Leandro, yeah, I think if you're just, you know, jamming a tube in there and putting it straight up through the jacket so that it's just above the jacket and putting foil on top of it, you're done. Yeah, not a problem, man. Yeah, I mean, the, the real key is exactly what you said, is that, I mean, really, you're looking for open fermentation conditions. You're basically trying to just make it so CO2 gets out of there as fast as it can. So I don't think you're you're going to have a problem with it at all. Right. If you think back to the conversation we had when we did the uh, Cezanne stall experiment, we were never able to reach a conclusion with uh, our chemist friend Jeremiah about whether it was back pressure or uh, CO2 toxicity that was actually causing the problem. But for either one of those, getting the CO2 out of there is the key. And I think that uh, your method is a great idea, Leandro. Yeah. And... By the way, can I say that we keep hearing back from more people about the open fermentation and Saison thing, right. and I'm seeing more and more people talk about it, more and more people are trying it, and it seems that for the most part, people are having great success with it. So I love it. Everybody but Marshall, huh? Yeah. What does he know? That jerk. <laughs> we love you, buddy. Okay, we're going to take a, a little bitty break here, and when we come back, we'll be finishing it up with some miscellaneous questions. So stick around and see what miscellaneous means. We'll be right back. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaka you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Hey, Denny, you know what time it is? Uh, it's just about time. Yeah, it's just about time for us to answer the last questions for this particular Q&A episode. Uh, these are questions that we couldn't really find a good general category for, so this is miscellaneous and random. Random, random, random. And now for somebody random to answer your questions. <laughs> that's right. And uh, this one is kind of like a philosophical question, so I guess that's why Drew gave it to me. Um... Uh, 
This one comes from Sean Kennis, and Sean says, Hey, Denny and Drew, I seek the benefit of your experience. I've been brewing for over 12 years. I love the home brewing hobby, the community, and the culture. Frankly, I can't imagine my life without it, but I found myself stuck in a rut. Over my time brewing, I've developed a solid understanding of the science of brewing to the point where it's become really challenging to learn new things about brewing from books, podcasts, blogs, etc. I developed the skills and expertise to make whatever beer I want, and I've got a growing collection of competition medals to prove it. I'm a BJCP judge. I'm an officer in one large homebrew club and heavily involved in another smaller club. To the outside observer, I'm a rousing success as a homebrewer. Here's my rut. Now what? Brewing and things brewing-related have temporarily lost their fun. I thrive on accomplishing goals. My goal right now is to rekindle the passion and enthusiasm I once felt for brewing and want to feel again. What advice can you offer? Thank you. TLDR, that's uh, too long didn't read for you non-internet people. How do you combat burnout? Cheers, Sean from Pennsylvania. P.S. I really enjoy the podcast and look forward to it each week. It's frequently the highlight of my Wednesday. Thanks and keep up the good work. Okay, I think to answer this question properly, we're going to need some mood music. Well, Sean, to tell you the truth, man, this is something that uh, I, I deal with also. Um, you know, I in the past, I have taken hobbies like uh, music and computers and turned them into things like owning a recording studio or taking care of large networks for companies. And I discovered that I totally burned out on both of those things, and it just wasn't fun anymore. So once I got into home brewing, my challenge was to keep home brewing from becoming something I had to do and make and, and remain as something that I want to do because I enjoy it so much. That has been a challenge the last few years, what with writing books and doing the podcast. It's easy for the home brewing to almost start seeming like a job to me, and I really don't want to do that. So what I have really kind of come to is realizing that you shouldn't be trying to force yourself to do it. You, you say you love the hobby, the community, the culture. Well, that's great, man. But that should be enough to pull you in and make you feel like you're not in a rut. And if that's not happening, then maybe what you need to do is step back from it and stop worrying about it, right? If you don't feel like brewing, don't brew until you do. Because if that love is really there, and I think that for almost all of us it is, eventually it will get to the point where you just have to brew again, where you just have to go judge a competition. So I guess bottom line, what I'm saying comes down to don't feel like you have to force yourself to do it just because you have this identity as a home brewer. Wait until the the, the urge comes to you, you know? Uh, don't go out there trying to grab it if it's not there. Uh, and, and hopefully that wasn't all too zen. No, I mean, come on. I, I, I think there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah, I, I do occasionally have to step back from brewing, but then 
inevitably what I find I find is bleh. inevitably what I find is that I just reach a point where suddenly it's like I'm cranky and my wife looks at me and goes you haven't brewed in a while and so I go brew um, but I will also say I think so Sean made mention that you know he's sort of very goal oriented accomplish oriented and you know I think one thing is maybe to look and see if there isn't a a way to challenge yourself right you know, a lot of times people when they become very skilled at a hobby so one of my other hobbies from the past was doing competition shooting and I enjoyed it a lot and I had friends who had been doing it for years and one friend was so good at what he was doing in terms of competition shooting that he got bored right suffering burnout just like what we were talking about and so he challenged himself by deciding that he was no longer going to use the firearms he really knew he was now going to switch to challenging himself by shooting revolvers which he wasn't any good at so maybe the maybe one way to kind of reignite some of the passion is to set yourself a challenge you know do something that yeah do something that you're not good at with brewing you know or maybe it's you know maybe it's as simple as you choose, you know, you take the Denny Khan method. You choose a single recipe and you focus in on that thing and brew it like nobody's business. Or do it with a style. Or develop a new technique. Something like that. Find a little goal. Find something that actually will sort of ignite you. Earlier we had a question about uh, getting a recirculating mash system. And I forgot to say this. You know, we were talking about uh, sometimes people get too wrapped up and think it's going to make better beer. And it kills motivation. I find a lot of times with these hobbies, you know, uh, we have to be careful with the goals that we're setting because a lot of people, for instance, get set on things like, hey, I, I'll, I know what I'll do. I'll go build a stand, right? That seems to be a very common thing as brewers get more experience. I'll build a stand. And inevitably, they build the stand and they stop brewing uh, because of burnout. So I would say step back, deep breath, read some Whitman, some Thoreau, whatever your bag is, uh, and set yourself a challenge. And yeah. that. And, and again, don't feel like it's something you have to do, right? Right now, you're worried because you don't feel like you want to brew, and you're kicking yourself for that. And, man, that, that is just not going to help. Just go on. Do other things. And when that desire to brew returns to you, and I bet you it will, then you'll be right back into it again. There you go. Yeah, don't, don't get wrapped up in identity. Identity, uh, identity can be a weird thing. But I would yep. say if you're if you really are if you really do feel like you're goal oriented, set yourself a challenge. Figure out what your brewing equivalent is to shooting revolvers. <laughs> and just know it'll be a lot safer. Well, maybe. Yep. Maybe. All right. Our next question comes from our good old friend Dave King, uh, from Beer. And he says, uh, hey guys, sorry I missed you at the uh, NHC, but it was just too short for all that was happening. I spent some time helping Brad at the Beersmith booth, but with such good talks, tons of great beer, and so many old friends, it was hard to catch everyone. Thanks for all the great podcast content, and see you in Portland. I do have a question. I've heard people talk about CO2 blankets. I'm not convinced there is such a thing. I expect CO2 introduced into a keg or similar vessel will mix with the air quickly and rather completely, right? The idea that CO2 is heavier is right, but I think the gases will be highly soluble in each other, so the CO2 won't sink to the bottom. What do you think? Thanks. Your old friend, Dave King, president of beer. Well, Dave, you're right to a certain extent. I mean, people people tend to treat CO2, or they have this vision of CO2 flooding into an area and basically just dropping like a rock and sitting on top of things like a perfectly leveled out piece of concrete. And the truth is that, yeah, CO2 and O2 are miscable, right? So they will uh, they will mix. 
And this is the reason why you know people will do these uh, purges and flushes of their kegs, and there'll still be O2 in the keg, right? Because as you're injecting the CO2, it mixes. Now, the idea behind the, the purge thing is that people keep doing this over and over and over again, hopefully driving off more oxygen each time. And that's part of the reason why I always argue for the, you know, the full complete keg purge in order to be sure that you're actually rid of your O2 or most of your O2. Um, so yeah, you will totally get mixing. Now, whether or not there's value in doing some of these CO2 uh, techniques, I believe there is because I think even if it's not going to be this perfect, you know, flat sidewalk of concrete, you know, in, in the form of CO2 blanking, there's going to be more protection there than just straight up O2 mix and nitrogen and all that that we find in regular air. So yeah, the the CO2 blanket, not quite as uh, firm or solid and a little more holy than people think it is, but still a thing, kind of. <laughs> yeah, and that's I think that's true. There There is no way that uh, you can rely on the fact that CO2 is heavier than air to protect you from gas mixing. It just happens, uh, but you can limit the amount that it happens, like Drew was saying. There you go. All right, next question. Wow, we have another question? Yep. A few more, buddy. Let's get there. <laughs> next question comes from Ivar Olsen in Norway. Hi, Denny and Drew. First of all, thank you for the superb podcasts you make. I've been binge listening almost every day, both to your main podcast and the brew file since I first discovered them, actually by searching for New England IPA, oh my God, in <laughs> iTunes and found your episode 15 about this beloved juicy, hoppy, and crushable beer style. We have a bit of a difference of opinion there, Ivar. I love you, Ivar. <laughs> anyway, here's my question. I've been homebrewing for about five years now, and I have finally made the decision to get myself a fermentation fridge. I have already bought the fridge and an Inkbird thermostat controller, but I'm not sure what type of heating device to get. I live in cold Norway, so I figure it is important with a proper heating source. I also want to be able to crank up the heat to the level that I can experiment with kettle souring if possible. I've seen a lot of different takes on this on the web, such as small ovens installed inside the fridge, heating fans, pillows, wires, brew belts, and so on. So what type of heating source would you recommend for this purpose? I'm using a conical steel fermenter, if that makes any difference regarding this question. Best regards, Ivar from Norway. Well, Ivar, what I use and really recommend is a reptile heater bulb. Uh, it's the kind of thing that if you have like a terrarium uh, at home with a, with some sort of lizard or reptiles in it, it's a bulb you put in there to keep them warm. It doesn't actually put out any light. Uh, the bulb itself is, is actually black, uh, but it is wonderful, wonderful for heating, does a great job. I have mine in a 15 cubic foot chest freezer. Uh, I use a 100-watt bulb, which, believe me, will give you more than enough heat. And it's it's easy. It's inexpensive. If you can't find one at your local pet shop, you can find them on, uh, on Amazon. And uh, let me tell you, being able to control my fermentation temperature has made a huge amount of difference in my beer. Uh, you got another option, Drew? Well, I was just thinking first, he says he's from uh, cold Norway. I was wondering if there's a hot Norway. <laughs> And yeah, I mean, the other heating source I can recommend is the hot, fiery passion that we all feel feel for beer to keep your beer warm. Ha ha ha. 
But no, I I think the best. I've tried brew belts in the past. I don't like them, and I know this is probably me being weird. But like, I swear to God, every time I've ever used a brew belt on something, I feel like the beer's been cooked. They they do seem to be hard to control. Yeah. So I I too I like the reptile heaters. Uh, basically, the ones I'm used to are basically screw into a socket and look like little flat ceramic discs. But those things put out a lot of heat. And those would be absolutely perfect for what you're doing. Now, the reason why you also see people talk about fans is because, well, you want to keep the air moving when you're heating it or cooling it so that it's constantly circulating. The one thing that we do have to realize is that, well, you know, air is still a lousy thermal conductor. So you're going to require a lot of heat in order to pull your uh, pull your fermenter around. But really, for your case, what you're mostly having to worry about is trying to keep the ambient air temperature up so that the fermentation temperature can do its own thing. So... A ceramic uh, reptile heater, perfect solution. Yep, exactly. It's uh, it's inexpensive. It's very effective. You don't have to worry about heat. Don't don't put like a fan heater or something like that in there, man. That's just silly. Uh, well, that's asking for uh, bad things to happen. Yeah, that's right. Okay, man, we get another question from overseas, and you get this one. Yeah, this one comes from uh, uh, Justin Vayner from uh, the Czech Republic. And he says, Hi, Denny and Drew. Love the podcast. Please keep them coming. I don't even mind the occasional ukulele. Sorry, Drew. <sighs> People, you are just what you are. <laughs> I am a newbie to brewing. I am self-taught, and I've brewed two batches of good-tasting beer already. Congratulations. I'm originally from Minnesota, but have been living in the Czech Republic for the last 10 years. And it is, as you may have heard, the beer here is amazing. And cheap. Yeah, I, I remember. Czech beer is cheap when you're in the Czech Republic. So why go into home brewing? Well, I love beer and really enjoy it. I have a lot of questions, but I'll try and limit them to just a few to get started. Uh, one, bulk ordering and storage. I know just as in cooking, using fresh ingredients in brewing is paramount. Currently, I'm making orders to my online distributor batch by batch according to the recipes I have set up. I would like to have some ingredients on hand, perhaps in bigger quantities than a full, few kilograms of malt at a time. So here are my questions. Which ingredients, malt, yeast, hops, water, do you buy in bulk for brewing and have on hand at all times? How do you store these? FYI, I don't have a mill, so I order my malt milled from the malt house. I brew about every other month. How much should I be? How much should I order to be able to have sufficient stock, but also keep the ingredients fresh? Uh, two, I've heard you, mostly Drew, talk about saisons, and it seems everyone has a different definition of what one is. How do you define a saison? And then lastly, temperature control. Like most brewers who are starting out, I don't have a sophisticated system for temperature control, yet I just have my fermenter in a back room. I don't even have a basement. And I know this is not ideal, so what are some problems that can occur from not controlling fermentation temperatures? What temperature control setup would you recommend that uses the least amount of space, work, and money? Thanks a ton. If you're ever in the Czech Republic, I'd be honored to show you around the beer culture here. And I'd be honored to take you up on it. Yeah, no kidding, man. Wow, there's a bunch of stuff here. Uh, yep. Dive so, uh, in. Yeah, let's deal with it. All right. So of the four main ingredients, what's the best to bulk order? Uh, malt and hops. So I know you say that you don't have a mill, so you have to buy things pre-milled, and that's fine. I've talked about it on the podcast before and some blog posts and other things. I buy gamma lids, you know, which are the things that people sell attached to uh, vittle vaults for pet food and whatnot. But you find them used a lot by survivalist people to basically do airtight and watertight food storage in buckets. So I'm, I'm not certain what the availability is going to be over in the Czech Republic, but really the key is you want to get your malt, particularly if it's ground, dr uh, stored someplace dry and relatively cool, but not 
cold, right? So you're not going hot, you're not going cold. You can pretty much just put it in a closet. But I get five-gallon buckets and I put malt in there. Uh, now, depending upon how much you want to have on hand, I have a stupid amount of malt in my garage. Like, a seriously stupid amount that is embarrassing to say how much I actually have. But, I mean, a couple of sacks pre-milled is probably going to be good, right? Because you figure most of your batches are probably going to be about a half a sack per per batch. So if you have a couple sacks on hand, that will give you enough to get uh, you know through a better part of a year. And the milled malt, if kept dry and kept away from air, will stay pretty good for about a year. I think when we did that experiment, we had some info from maybe Brees, and they were talking like even a couple years. One thing I'll suggest for storing malt are these uh, containers made for pet food called Vittel Vaults, and they can hold quite a bit. Uh, you can get pretty much a sack of grain into one of them. They're not all that expensive. They seal very tightly, keep air and uh, and moisture out. Great way to store grain, so you might want to look into those. Yep. And also, hops keep remarkably well, but you'll want to keep them, you need to keep them cold, so in a freezer. And if you have a sort of a traditional commercial, or sorry, a traditional residential freezer, you know, like one of the frost-free ones, you also probably want to pack a couple of ice packs around the hops as well, because the the frost-free freezers cycle their temperatures up and down. So you want to kind of keep those as cold as possible and away from the light. Right. So those are the two that store the best. The other one actually is dried yeast. And I know a lot of people who are not in the U.S. end up using dried yeast for a lot of their homebrew. Dried yeast actually stores like a like a charm. You know, I just keep it in the fridge. Dunk, done. Uh, and I've used several-year-old packets of dry yeast for various projects. So there you go. Water. Water's water. You're just going to get the water when you need it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, all right. So Cezanne's, uh, my definition of Cezanne, uh, well, uh, read my Cezanne manifesto on the Maltos Falcons website. Uh, that's my definition of Saison, but it's basically, to me, it is a dry beer with a wonderfully popped spicing phenolic type, uh, of aroma, a little bit of bread, not a lot. Uh, that's one of my big disagreements with a lot of, uh, how commercial American Saisons are made where they're, they're really just bread beers with a Saison yeast underneath them. Uh, but yeah, just dry rustic beer with a little bit, a little bit of hooey. Not a lot, and uh, really brisk hopping and spicing. You got you got a different definition, <laughs> man. I know better than to argue with you about the definition of saison. Hey, who knew you could be smart? Um, and then lastly, uh, temperature control. Uh, best ways for beginners to do it. I will counsel you with what I always did in the past, and I actually still use this, uh, particularly when I'm doing saisons during the summer. Get yourself a big trash can. Fill the trash can with water. Put your fermenter in the in that water, and then add ice or frozen uh, two liter pop bottles in there. Cycle those out every day. You can actually pretty reasonably keep a fermenter in the the 60s, and actually be able to kind of control your fermentation with that. And really, all it costs you is sort of the manual task of freezing water bottles and replacing them every 12 hours, and having a trash can on hand. Yeah, I did that for a number of years before I got my chest freezer to ferment in, and uh, although it's a bit of a pain, it works very effectively. Yep. So that's the easy and cheap solution, or as Danny would probably call it, the pragmatic one. Uh, and <laughs> or cheap and in- you can also ha- you can have that on hand, and nobody's going to let you funny. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Okay, and our very last question is a voicemail that came in, and we're going to play that before we talk about it. Hey, guys. New Brewer here. Was wondering what you'd recommend as good option for shipping uh, bottles. Thank you much. Okay, shipping beer. It's actually not too difficult to do. Uh, number one, let me tell you that uh, do not use the old trick of saying that you're just shipping yeast samples because UPS knows all about that now. Uh, I just say gifts. To package it, I wrap each bottle in bubble wrap, put each bottle into a tightly sealed bag, uh, put those into a box with plenty of packing around it, peanuts, newspaper, you know, more bubble wrap, whatever. Um, seal it up, take it off. Uh, a really good way to do it is to uh, set up a, a UPS online account, or I guess you don't even need an account. You can go to the UPS website and uh, print out a shipping label for it and just drop it off. If they happen to ask you what's in it, just say gifts, uh, but they probably won't. But the key is that you need to make sure that uh, all those individual bottles are tightly protected and sealed so that if one of them should leak at the cap or break, all the beer will be contained within the bag that that particular bottle is in and will not come flooding out of your box. Although I have to say that my UPS guy is so cool, he's delivered boxes that were leaking beer, and it was not an issue for him. There you go. Well, and I'll also say I have, well, and, you know, I also like wine and beer, and so I have subscriptions to a couple of winery wine wine clubs. And if you get the wine shipped to you, because it turns out I don't actually live near very many wineries, they will ship in these really awesome cardboard boxes that either have, like, say styrofoam uh, containers where, you know, basically a bottle slides into the middle of styrofoam and a styrofoam lid goes on top of it. Or the other one that I've also been seeing a lot more now is these new sort of recyclable uh, bottle shippers. And they are basically a flat cardboard box with sort of crushed, strange textured cardboard with bottle line shapes. And they basically stack on top of each other. So you can put multiples together and you usually find them in two or three bottle size boxes. And I have those on hand. You can actually find those online and buy them. Now, the one problem is, of course, that may make the people who are on the receiving side, aka your UPS folks, go, hey, that's alcohol. You can't ship that. But for the most part, uh, take Denny's advice. Do the uh, do the online account and maybe find a mom and pop UPS store that uh, isn't going to be as persnickety. That's what I do. <laughs> Yeah, really. Uh, so anyway, it's easy. Seal the bottles up. Don't tell anybody what's in there. Ship them out. Yep. And don't use the postal service. Yeah, definitely not. Uh, I, I found that UPS works best for me. Your call. Holy cow, man. I'm out of words. <laughs> well, we still have to have a few more. I mean, we're not done yet. <laughs> we're not? No. We got to tell everybody goodbye. Oh, yeah, that's right. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a whole bunch of different beer forums, including the AHA Forum, where you should be hanging out, too. 
Drew spends his beer time on the Reddit Homebrewing Forum and the Slack Homebrewing Channel. And if you want to ask us a question, please send us questions. We always need more. We love your questions. Or you can suggest topics, recipes, experiments. You can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So until the next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. And boy, that was a lot of questions. 